the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode number 630 for Sunday, November 6th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show. It's like car talk for Apple geeks. That means you send in your questions. We answer your questions. We share your tips. We share cool stuff found with the goal being for all of us to learn four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Casper at Casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off an already very affordable mattress. An excellent mattress, too. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. PDF Pen Pro 8 from Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek, where you can save 20%. We'll talk more about that later. And Videoblocks, a new sponsor at videoblocks.com slash geek2016. That's geek2016, where you get both video blocks and audio blocks for just one price, $149 a year. So we'll talk more about all three of those shortly. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Mr. John F. Braun, how are you doing today? Yeah. We changed the uh, clocks back here in the U.S. last night. I guess in the in Europe, they did it uh, a week ago because we've, we're have we no longer on the same schedule for that. And uh, and I think, I mean, from what I heard uh, from our friends across the pond, as, as you like to say, and, and from what I'm hearing from people here this morning, we had so much fun doing it. Folks, next weekend, we're going to do it again. So there you go. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yep. So much fun. Do you have anything to share, John, quickly before we uh, before we dive in or, or can I can I tell him about Brad's uh, great find here? Yeah, go for it. I think All right. I, I have some to add to it. Yeah. So we we were talking in, in a recent show about Sierra, how it Mac OS Sierra. This is how if you try to mount a drive. Uh, a network drive, it brings up a dialogue before you can mount that drive. And it's a username and password dialogue. But if you've told it to save your username and password, it's already populated. So all you have to do is click OK. And it seems that this is part of Sierra's security where it won't even mount a network drive without you saying, yes, I intended to do that, which kind of sucks when you're trying to mount drives with scripts and things and just keep them mounted without user intervention or interaction. Brad found a very interesting workaround. He says, uh, I had this problem, too, because I have a volume uh, containing movies stored on my disk station, my Synology, that I keep mounted on my Mac all the time. While troubleshooting this, I found something unexpected. I have an alias saved on my desktop that points to the shared volume stored on my disk station. If I select that alias and do a file get info, the volume mounts in the background without throwing up the password dialogue. He says, I took this and built on it and created an Apple script uh, that runs a shell script every 60 seconds inside the shell script. It's basically doing uh, it, it checks to see if the disk station is mounted. And if it doesn't, uh, it does a get info. It run, runs another Apple script to do a get info on that and then closes the get info window. So it does this very quickly, but that's all it takes to mount the drive. So this is pretty awesome. Uh, and he sent us an example of his Apple script. I'll put that up in, in the files section of our uh, Facebook group at uh, 
if you just go to MacGeekab.com slash Facebook, that'll bring you to our Facebook group. We have a files section there and we can store all kinds of things. I'll, I'll be sure to put a, uh, a version of this Apple script up there, but this works now. The, the, so first of all, Brad, wow. Like awesome. Find. I have no idea what led, what, what path of the gods led you to, uh, to discovering this because that's pretty, pretty amazing. And number two, I think we all need to accept that this probably is an unintentional uh, hole in Apple's new security decision tree. And probably I think we, we at least have to prepare for the for the day when, you know, a Sierra update comes out that plugs this particular hole. But in the meantime, this certainly works around the issue of not being able to mount drives without interaction. So pretty cool, Brad. Very cool. John, you said you had something to add to this. Yeah, well, I found a way to do it as well. So I was going back and forth with, um, you know, the the listener that pointed this out, and I was trying to figure. So we had one listener who actually doesn't experience this behavior, and it uh, I that just seems to be this, an anomaly. Yeah, like you know, do you have different permissions on this or or what? But uh, sure. one thing that I did try that will work. Um. And I verified this is is I wrote an Apple script that actually uses a URL that has the username and password in it, and that's another way to do this without getting a prompt. Oh, re- oh, really? And the Apple script is actually pretty simple. So, um, I'll post that in our Facebook group too. That would be yeah. So yeah. you started off so so, so basically, and, and it's one line. So, um, but. The takeaway from this is that you can uh, form a URL that has the username and password in it. Now, some people may shake their fists and say that's that's not a great idea. Massively but, insecure, uh, sure, because you're storing the the password in plain text, right? Right. But um, yeah, but it, but it's one line, so it's do shell script, and then in quotes or double quotes, yeah. Depending on how you want to mount it, so so the one I did is mount underscore AFP, and then you give a URL that begins with. In this case, AFP colon slash slash the username colon the password at sign and then the IP address yep. slash the name of the share. Yep. And then where you want to want to put it. And can like you put it volumes. in the slash? In it, so putting it in slash volumes works. Is that right? Yes. And you don't uh, uh, because you're submitting. So that's that's another kind of sneaky. Uh, uh, people have found various workarounds. So this is one workaround. Uh, another one is huh. if you select the mount point to be something other than slash volumes, like your home directory, right. that also seems to. Uh, yeah, the, I, I would, as I did when we talked about it before, I would caution against mounting it anywhere other than slash volumes only because if you happen to mount it the normal way in the finder that is going to put it in slash volumes and you could wind up with the drive mounted in two places. Um, and, 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 and then your apps that are using it start getting screwed up and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, so if, if you can use a method like one of the two we just mentioned here that allow you to mount it in slash volumes, which is where it normally goes when you just mount in the finder, that's I think way better because way better. Sure. Let's go with that. That's pretty good, man. Nice finds. Oh, I like it. I like it. I like it. This is what we like to do here. Uh, in the last show, 629, we were discussing 
tools that would check fans and sensors for a listener. And Patrick points out that Tech Tool Pro is yet another one of those tools. So uh, I just wanted to share that because Tech Tool Pro is a handy tool. I don't know why. I, I, I seem to personally, I seem to go through phases where I think about Tech Tool Pro all the time uh, as a solution and then and then go through phases where I don't. So I appreciate the reminder because it is a splendid tool and certainly one that can be trusted. So thanks, Patrick. Very, very good stuff. Also. Well, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I remember ages ago they used to bundle it with Apple Care. You used to get a like a baby yeah. copy of it. Yeah, that's right. That's I right. Don't do that anymore? No. Yeah, I don't no. have it on my machine right now. I should uh, revisit it. Yeah, it's 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 good. It's really good, in fact. Uh, so, in also in six twenty nine, we talked about uh, USB C ports and how USB C ports can carry all kinds of things, including Thunderbolt three, but not always, right? Including USB one, two, and three, including power. Uh, Bruce found, uh, well, he has, he found a great article. In fact, is, is what it is. And it's at, uh, foskets.net. And if I can pull it up here, because my computer is, uh, well, this is awesome. That's great. It just seems like it wants to fight me and I'm going to go ahead and let it, but that's okay. Um, it's called total nightmare, USB, USB C and Thunderbolt three. And it's, it's worth a read only because it really kind of helps underscore the, the lesson that we gave last week about USB uh, letters being port shapes at, or connector shapes, depending on which side you're on. And then uh, the numbers being the transmission protocol or speeds, if you will. And so we will put that out, but it, it kind of goes through all of the different USB two, USB three, USB 3.1 gen one, USB 3.1 gen two. And it's a great little reference to show that uh, even cables that look the same are not necessarily the same because Thunderbolt three requires an active cable. Uh, it looks just like a regular USB-C cable because, of course, it has USB-C ports at both ends. But you need a special Thunderbolt 3 certified cable in order to get the speeds for the Thunderbolt 3. So uh, it, this makes it very, very difficult when you're reaching into your bag o cables to grab the right one. You Unless you put a label on your cables, label your cables. I like it. Uh, then you won't necessarily know what you're doing at all. So, um, so there you go. So it's a great little piece and, uh, and we'll, we'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes. Of course, of course. Also on that subject, John, John, listener, John has a bunch of USB C tips and tricks to share. Actually four of them. He said, uh, here's some four points you didn't mention. Number one, the 13 inch MacBook pros have only one PCI controller with 12 PCI channels. Four channels are required for full Thunderbolt 3 throughput, which is why the right ports on the Touch Bar MacBook Pro 13-inch uh, only have half speed because they're only two channels each. In the 15-inch, there are two controllers that provide a total of 16 channels, allowing full speed in all four ports. So that's why the leftmo leftmost ports go faster in the 13 inch uh, touch bar MacBook pro than the, uh, than the right ones do now in the 13 inch 
non-touch bar MacBook Pro, there's only two USB-C ports. So because it has the same controller as the one with four, that's fine. It's going to get full speed in both of them. Uh, he says, number three, the really big caveat is the cables. And we just mentioned this. If you use active cables with a chip in them, like Thunderbolt 1 and 2, then you get full throughput. If you use passive cables, then you only get 10 gigabit on the entire chain of that port. So again, kind of a quick summary of, of one of the points in the previous article. And then number four, this is very cool. If you connect multiple power supplies to multiple ports, which remember is going to be totally possible. And in fact, probably will happen without you even realizing it. If you connect your power adapter to one of your USB ports, and then you connect a powered hard drive to another of your USB-C ports, it's likely that powered hard drive is going to be passing power through to your MacBook Pro. Uh, this was not an issue with the MacBooks because, well, it wasn't as much of an issue with the MacBooks because they had one port, although you could start daisy chaining things and probably get into the same scenario. He, anyway, he says, if you connect multiple power supplies to multiple ports, the MacBook Pro will be smart enough to identify the strongest power supply and select that one to charge from. It cannot charge from more than one simultaneously, but it can sense which one is providing the most current. And then you can use that. And one that I'll throw in is, and MacBook owners likely already know this, but, uh, there are many, many USB-C battery packs out there, and this means that you could recharge your MacBook Pro from an appropriately sized battery pack. So just worth throwing that out there. I think Ventev has one for USB-C. It's worth looking into that. So there you go. Oh, yeah. They make yeah. everything. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they hooked me up. Uh, they have really nice uh, uh, lightning cables. Yep. Very, very happy with them. And... Uh, yeah, they also gave me uh, one of their uh, <clears throat> lightning uh, chargers. Sure. That you can charge your, uh, your sure. phone with. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it is good stuff. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I like it. So so anyway, that's the, um, that's, the, that's the story on that. So thank you very much, listener John, for sharing that tip. Okay. Uh, in, again, 629. We've got two more from 629. Then we can start getting into more questions but but these questions were important uh listener todd heard me when i was talking about what computers to buy for computer or computers to buy for my family what laptops in, in particular uh he said uh you said you're hesitant in getting a mac with only two cores i'd love to hear why i was thinking of getting one of the new 13 inch macbook pros for my wife but that has two cores uh and it does. You're right, Todd. It does have two cores. In fact, the only laptops that don't are the 15-inch MacBook Pros. So my my hesitation here is more about my experience with Sierra on my 2011 MacBook Air and El Capitan on both that machine and any of the really old kind of Core 2 Duo machines that I've got around here. I often see system processes taking up multiple cores simultaneously, things like MDS store or contact sync. There's just so many things in the core of the OS that have nothing to do with any third party apps that I've loaded uh, that regularly take up four or even more than four cores. And it's at moments like this. The reason I'm seeing this is because my machine is slow and I'm looking at activity monitor or I step menus trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. And that's when I see, you know, all of these these processes kind of chewing up cores in the background. Uh, I don't experience this on my four core machines. 
So, so that's where my hesitation came from. But this week after, especially after saying that on last week's show, I decided to wipe my Sierra machine clean. Um, uh, my, this is my MacBook pro, not my only Sierra machine, but my, my MacBook air rather, I decided to wipe it clean and see what happened. So I installed just a bare Sierra on it. I, I literally formatted the drive. I mean, I, I made a clone first because, you know, that's what, that's what we do, but, uh, formatted the drive brought everything over from scratch. So certainly initially as it was, you know, re-downloading all of my email from the server and resyncing my cloud station, which is my, most of my shared files and my Dropbox, which I used to share files with some other people, you know, as it was doing all of that, things were notably bogged down, but I expected that there's lots of activity happening. So I gave it, you know, overnight to get all that done. And it did. And then things ran pretty smoothly. Uh, I found out a couple of weird things and I've got to find, uh, I've got to dig into why this happens. But um, when I decided for the, for the first day or so, John, all I was using was uh, activity monitor to keep, you know, an eye on things. And I just set, you can with, with activity monitor, it's actually pretty handy for those of you that don't want to use something like iStat menus. Um, if you go into the view menu and go to dock icon, you can, by default, it just shows you the application icon, which is sort of, you know, generic and, and non-informative unless you just want to know what app it is. But you can, I set it mine to show CPU usage. And that got, that was really, really handy because now I could see how the cores were being used uh, without having to run iStat menus. So I did that and things looked fine. Things were happy. Things, you know, everybody was good. And then I installed iStat menus and... Because I was installing it from scratch, I experienced what a normal uh, install would look like, John. And it asked me something odd. It asked me to have access to my contacts, which I thought was weird. But I mean, I trust the guys at, at Bajango. I actually know them personally. And so I thought, well, okay, if it wants access to my contacts, that's fine. But I, it just, I couldn't figure out why it would need that. And, uh, and I haven't got, I haven't asked them yet. So that's why I haven't gotten an answer as to why I'm still sort of, uh, digging on my own, but that's on my list of things to ask. And as soon as I did that, the whole contact sync engine, which I saw repeatedly running, uh, previously on my machine when it was Sierra and El Capitan just went nuts. I mean, and it was like every 10 minutes, it would just like chew up, you know, 160% of the CPU or whatever it was, and it would run for a couple of minutes. And this was just happening over and over again. I thought, well, that's interesting. That wasn't happening on this machine. I had already synced my contacts down because I'd logged into iCloud. So I went in and you can do this. If you go into system preferences, I believe it's in security and privacy is where uh, this is. And, uh, and you go to the privacy tab, which is, uh, I believe the one all the way on the right and choose contacts you can decide which apps have access to uh, your contacts. And you can do the same with location and calendars and all the other great things here. So I just turned this off for iStat menus and very, very quickly, the contact sync thing calmed down and it never spiked up again, or at least I haven't seen it spike up again. So I'm not sure what that is. Maybe there's something wrong with my contacts database in a general sense from the cloud that every time a third-party app goes in to access it, it sort of spikes this up. Because I imagine not everyone is experiencing this thing that I was. But uh, but I turn that off, and things have been mostly okay on on that. And this is a you know a five-year-old dual-core machine. It's a mobile dual-core. It's only 1.7 gigahertz. Uh, but um, but it's been mostly okay. 
So I'm feeling a little bit less hesitant about getting a, a you know, a dual core, or like a MacBook Pro th- or 13 inch for, uh, for members of the family. I don't think I would order one of the new ones uh, just because of cost. I can get a really good, uh, you know, previous generation MacBook Pro for, you know, like 1200 bucks um, from the Apple refurb store. So that's probably what I'll go with for, uh, for at least one of the kids. My daughter is in desperate need of a computer that would actually function well and travel well for her to and from school. So, so that's what I'm considering. But uh, but I'm feeling better about the two cores now that I kind of started from scratch. And uh, and you know it wasn't all that painful starting from scratch. Every now and then I'll run across something where it's like, oh yeah, I don't have that on here. But uh, but you know that's usually pretty quickly solved. I can I, with about maybe an hour's worth of setup. I got the computer to the point where I could use it pretty regularly. And then just, you know, like once a day or something, it's like, Oh yeah, I need that app. So then I have to go and get it and find the settings that I liked and kind of tweak it and maybe spend 15 minutes doing that. But, um, but it's working well. I I will point out though, that I have not enabled iCloud photo library on that machine yet. Uh, I did enable photo stream on it, but, iCloud photo library scares me because it it's going to want to down a download oh, yeah. everything and b re-index all of my photos that not only has that machine indexed at least once before, but all my other machines have indexed too. So I'm, I'm hesitant to turn on iCloud photo library on that, on that computer for that reason alone. And I may never turn it back on, on that machine. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. So, but there you go. So that's, that's, there's my thoughts on, on dual cores. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that helps any of you, but hopefully it does. Hopefully at least it, it gives a little more, more of a picture. So thoughts on that, John? Uh, this machine is dual core. So the 2014, the 2014 mini. Yes. Oh, the mini. I, I, your MacBook pro is quad core though, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah. see the mini's not so using the low seven. Yeah. The MacBook pro. So I have a 2012 MacBook pro and, and I chose a four core I seven in that one. But my mini, uh, although a newer machine has a relatively wimpier processor. It's an I five. That's only two cores, but mm. uh, it certainly uh, offers better performance than the 2010 machine that I had, because that was only a core two duo. So even though they they're roughly the, the they were roughly the same uh, clock speed, the yeah. uh, you know the i five is uh, 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 more efficient, I guess. Or things that I, I would regularly on on the twenty ten machine, I would regularly run across situations where the processor was pegged, mm. like when you and I were trying to do video and stuff. Oh sure, well video, yeah, yeah. That's that's different because it's actually using the CPU in a way that that makes sense. Like, like I said, my my concern was that you know with something like Snow Leopard on that machine, all the system processes were tweaked for dual core stuff, and it never ever bogged down just doing normal things, doing video and that sort of thing. Absolutely, you know. But but my my concern is more about the OS. Uh, you know, happily maxing out my, my CPU on that machine in a regular way, not just at boot, but you know, at random, seemingly random times. Yeah. And if you want to find out how many cores that you have, it's very easy. You go to about this Mac overview system report, or you can click on the Apple menu and say, uh, where is it? Uh, it's not, not here. Um, 
Wait, where maybe is it? It's, yes, maybe it's I'm not sorry. as easy as you thought. No, no, no. No, you, uh, oh. uh, if you click on the Apple and then you hold down Option, you'll see the top thing change to uh, System Information. Yeah. And then you can see the number of cores in the first report that comes up there. Uh, in the chat room, Will Run for Fun asks, and I'm sorry, I forget your real name. I know it begins with an A, and you told us last week. But uh, the chat room, of course, at MacGeekab.com slash stream, where you can always join us when we are recording the show. Uh, and he asked, are there any good avenues for getting, Andy asked, if are there any good avenues for getting uh, refurb Macs? It seems like the Apple refurb store is empty. And it's true. Right now, the only 13-inch MacBook Pro in the Apple refurb store is the one with 128 gigs of flash storage for 1099. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, that's a, it's a great price for a machine, but even better was the 1189 for the same machine with 256 gigs of flash storage. Uh, I would, my advice is keep an eye on this. These inventory here changes not only daily, but throughout the day. So I think you're going to see more come back here is, is, is what's going to happen. So, uh, don't, don't fret, you know, you, if you've got some patience and you're ready to pull the trigger, whenever you, uh, whenever you see what you want, I think you'll be able to find it here. Uh, very much though, would appreciate anyone else that has good avenues for Apple reverbs, especially if there are ways of getting those refurbs that also allow you to sign them up for Apple care, like a normal new machine. Cause that's one thing I really like about the Apple refurb store. So, yeah. And if you don't want to go through the tedium of checking the refurb store regularly, yes. uh, the thing that I used when I was with, cause minis especially seem to uh, go into and out of the store very quickly. Very quickly. That's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the site that I used is refurb-tracker.com and you can specify, okay, I'm looking for this particular product and tell me when something's changed and it pings the refurb store on your behalf and we'll send you an email if it sees anything different. Oh, dude. All right. Looks like we're all going to be using that. Sweet. Thanks, John. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. Um, and then listener Michael has a question that we're going to let Michael ask all by himself. Hey, John and Dave, this is Michael calling from New York city. A uh, question um, on something you kind of let fly quickly on the last episode. Dave, you were talking about setting up your Echo Dot and how you're talking to it and it's, you know, talking back to you. But you mentioned that you're using it to turn on your TV. Uh, wondering that if you have a Fire Stick and that's how that's happening, or if you've gotten um, access, which I think a lot of people in the U.S. have at least now, to uh, the Harmony Hub. Um, I am very interested in trying that out. I have a, one of the Logitech Harmony remotes, though not the hub, and I ordered one. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering how effective it is, how difficult it was to set up, especially because I have, you know, it's multiple steps. It's the TV going on, it's my uh, Roku going on, it's my receiver going on, which everything is plugged into. And, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that that's able to handle it, um, obviously from the phone, but I'm wondering if, the Echo is pretty effective at saying, okay, you know, turn on the Roku and all the appropriate components will just kind of turn on on their own. So we'd love to hear your, uh, your thoughts on that. If that is indeed the way you're doing it. Thank you. Yeah, you bet, Michael. That is exactly the way I'm doing it. So I've had a Harmony Hub here for a long time. 
uh, I think, I feel like it's been almost two years that I've had the Harmony one with the Harmony hub and it, and, and that alone works great. It's, it's truly a, a beautiful experience. Uh, it's the best universal remote experience I've had in part because of the UI of the remote, but also because of what you mentioned, the hub. So the hub actually sits near the TV and is connected via Wi-Fi to my network. So not only can the remote control things and the remote controls the hub, you don't have to make sure it's aimed at it. The hub is the thing that broadcasts the IR. Actually, I think in some cases, the remote will also broadcast IR if the hub is failing to do so. But um, but with my setup, when it's working the way it's supposed to, which is 99% of the time, the hub is what sends the IR to all the devices. So you don't even have to be in the same room. If you've got the remote, you can run an app on your phone to control everything. And it works just fine. Cause again, it's all doing, it's talking to the hub over Wi-Fi. Uh, it just joins your local network. And then from there, the hub does what it needs to with the TV. So when you put all that together, it makes a whole lot of sense about how Amazon's Alexa can work in this environment. And yes, what you say is I'm not going to say the, the trigger word uh, because I don't want everybody's TVs to start turning on, but you just say uh, trigger, turn on my TiVo and boom, it not just turns on your TiVo, but because I've got, and, and everybody that uses a harmony remote would, would do this. Uh, I have an activity set called watch TiVo and that knows to turn on not only my TiVo, but my receiver and my TV. And it sets my receiver and TV to the right inputs and all of those things. So it's, it's this one script, if you will, it's very, very easy to create. Don't let the word script scare you. Uh, very, very easy. And you can tweak it and set it exactly like you want. And so then really what I'm telling um, the Amazon thing to do is to trigger one of those activities. And and there is an activity for turn off entertainment center, which is also really, really nice. In fact, last night I was watching something. We watched a movie or whatever. I had a fire going and I realized I didn't have the room. Oh, I had I had the Apple TV remote near me because it's still easier to shuttle between uh, shuttle around with the Apple TV remote because it's got the the little scrubber on it and all that. But I didn't have the thing, the Harmony remote near me uh, to turn off the system. And even though the uh, Alexis in the other room, I just said, you know, turn off entertainment center and it heard me and boom, turned everything off, which was really, really nice. And, and it's it, the, the opposite is great too. If I know we're going to watch a movie on the Apple TV, as I'm in the kitchen, I can just say, you know, turn on Apple TV. And by the time I get to the living room, everything's up and waiting, waiting and ready for me. It's uh, it's quite splendid. And and again, you know, this is sort of the, the highlights, the difference between Alexa and Siri, because you can't do this with Siri without setting up your home bridge and, you know, holding your mouth just right and all that. By by default, HomeKit does not support everything. Right. It, it's very the devices that are that have HomeKit support are very, very limited. And uh, and that's just how it goes. Um, that's that's part of Apple security and um, and part of how Apple does things. But it certainly gets frustrating. I, I, I haven't put this article up yet I'm in, in the process of kind of tweaking it. But um, but I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks speaking with not only HomeKit hardware and software, but mostly hardware vendors but also people at Apple uh, about HomeKit security. And, and I've got a definitive answer on this. And, and 100% of the people uh, agree, even, even Apple, uh, because this is just how it is. When the botnet attacks happened, John, everybody, I heard, not everybody, I heard a lot of people saying, if only 
everyone used HomeKit, these botnet attacks, you know, th- these these uh, these devices wouldn't have been hacked. And that is entirely untrue. But I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent how awesome HomeKit security is. HomeKit in and of itself, the security is awesome. I mean, it's amazing. It's in fact, it's a little bit overkill. Right. But but that's OK. Uh, in order even for the devices to authenticate with each other, they first have to exchange keys. And that happens with this crazy process that is like I don't want to say anything's unhackable, but if something's unhackable, it's HomeKit. There's no way that someone is is going to get into your HomeKit stream or even get to your iPhone from a HomeKit device. This stuff is like totally secure and great. But that's only HomeKit data. Pretty much every device, especially an IP-based device, so Wi-Fi-based devices that use HomeKit are accessible from other platforms too. So you could access them from Alexa, for example. You can access them often from the manufacturer's own app on their smart, you know, on your smartphone. You don't have to use HomeKit. In fact, I think there's only one device and it's a blue, it's a series of devices from Elgato, the Bluetooth LE devices that are only HomeKit. Uh, but otherwise, everything else that uses HomeKit, especially, again, those that use it over over Wi-Fi, are just doing it um, as yet another way to control this device. So, A, any security holes that might be open in any of those other protocols are right there on the same HomeKit device. And B, anything that might be in the chipset, like we had with this botnet attack is also right there in the device. And there is nothing in the HomeKit standard or HomeKit certification process uh, when you get a HomeKit, when you get the stamp of approval that says your device is HomeKit enabled, there is nothing in that process that mandates that you close other security holes. You can leave anything open that you want. Now, that doesn't mean that manufacturers do leave things open, but it means that they could. Hopefully, manufacturers are responsible and shut down everything and then only open up what's needed. But as we've seen... That doesn't always happen. So HomeKit's not the answer here, uh, but it but it's not it's also not a bad thing. It, however, is very limited just because of the hardware requirements to make it uh, to make it work. So does that make sense, John? Did I explain that well? Yeah. If if HomeKit is the only way you can interact with a device, then you're cool. Then uh, not necessarily. Because let's say it, it, I get where you're going, but here's the thing. The Murai attack, right? The botnet had nothing to do with smart home access to that device. It was that the root password SSH was left on in the Linux chipset by default. And the root password was the same thing for all devices. So unless the vendor had actually gone in and turned that off, Mm -hmm. then even if the only thing they put on there was HomeKit, that root hole would still have been open. Right. Well, you just said what i said if homekit is the only way to control the device then you're good well but see but the, uh, you you're that's misleading because if i buy a device and it says on the, it, it, yeah what i'm saying again if homekit is the sole way of controlling the device but right, I, I, right. I, I, but but here's I don't, the thing I don't think you get what i'm saying but the thing is there could be backdoors and default passwords and, right. and stuff like that that are in there that are in there anyway. Yeah. 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 Cause this and, wasn't smart. This wasn't a smart left- home method of getting into, right, right. right. Yeah. It was just there. So just because the only, the only access listed on the box is home kit doesn't mean it's secure. It means home kit secure. Understood. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 
It's crazy. And if they if they check the device and make sure that mm. there, you know isn't any other way to access it, then then you're good. Then you're good. But yeah, yeah. Clearly, <laughs> but yeah, uh, a lot yeah, of these we, guys. Yeah, don't. we can't trust vendors. The the one good thing I will say is that because of how strict and resource intensive HomeKit's requirements are for its security, you're kind of leaving the the weaker vendors behind. If someone's going to bother to go through the what is what very much a hassle uh, to put HomeKit in their device, they're probably all also going to work to lock it down. They, they've probably got enough engineering resources where they're not just doing the minimum required possible to get this thing out the door because HomeKit requires so much more than that. Uh, so you're, it, it implies that the vendor is doing other good things. So perhaps they're doing good things, but just ask your vendor. I mean, that's, that's the simplest answer. Ask us if we know about it, we'll happily tell you. So. Fun stuff. All right, John, I want to, uh, I want to talk about a couple of our sponsors here. If that, uh, if that's okay by you, my friend. Oh, absolutely. Sweet. The first one I want to start with is Casper. Uh, Casper, if you visit casper.com slash MGG, coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off of their already low prices on what I've found to be the best mattress I've ever slept on. Now, let's talk about the prices here because, uh, you know, I've got kids and my son's hockey team is doing a mattress sale this year. It's like this one day thing where everybody comes in and buys mattresses. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know how involved I can get with this folks, you know, but, uh, but I'll support the team as best I can. One of the people who was on the team, one of the parents of a kid who was on the team last year said, oh yeah, I, you know, I got this great mattress there. Uh, it's the best mattress I've ever slept on. They gave some name brand or whatever. And they said, normally this mattress was $2,800, but uh, because I went to this this one day mattress sale we had, it was twenty two hundred dollars. And I'm thinking, holy crap, you could have bought almost three of Casper's most expensive mattress that they only get expensive. Uh, the, the, the price changes only be with size, right? They have one model mattress. Uh, you just pick the size. So the most expensive Casper mattress is a king because that's the largest size. For $950. Now, remember what I said at the beginning of the spot here. You save 50 bucks off of that price. So for $900, you can get a mattress that I would assume is better than what this woman was very, very happy to spend only $2,200 on. Yikes. You don't want to be in that scenario. You just want to spend the 900 bucks or less if you need a smaller mattress on your mattress and get the best mattress i've ever experienced and i travel a lot i've i've slept on a lot of what are supposed to be great mattresses casper's the best uh it's it's all kinds of different foam it's not just memory foam uh it's latex foam it holds you just right it makes sure you stay cool it's awesome uh and i really really highly recommend them in addition to the fact that they are a sponsor here so check them out Visit casper.com slash MGG. Use coupon code MGG. Our thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode. I also want to talk about Smile Software, John, because Smile has PDF Pen 8 now. Now, PDF Pen is a tool that allows you to do all kinds of things on your Mac with PDFs. Think of it as the Swiss Army knife for PDFs. Well, as 
you would expect the folks that smile just keep making it better. Uh, in PDF Pen 8, they now have trusted signing. So you've always been able to paste your signature in and put it wherever you want with PDF Pen, right? Now with PDF Pen 8, you can apply digital signatures um, that you can either create and sign yourself with a self-signed certificate, or you can use an AATL certificate, AATL being a Adobe approved trust list. So this is now something that you can sign a PDF with that other people can say, yeah, all right, that, that signature that came with that is known at least by Adobe to come from the person that I believe it came from. So this is very, very cool. Uh, you can export to Microsoft Word without having to be on the Internet now. That was that was something that required a little engine online to do. Now that's all baked right into PDF Pen Pro 8. Uh, you can add audio annotations to your PDFs now, which is very, very cool. And you can add file attachments to your PDF. So uh, you can include annotations in the document. And you can review the file attachments and the documents that you receive and then extract them out into separate files. It's crazy what you can do with PDF pen. And I highly recommend that you check it out. So what you're going to do is you're going to visit smilesoftware.com slash geek. And the cool part here is when you visit that, you get a, uh, it's, I don't think it's quite a coupon, but you get a, an offer to save 20% on a new PDF pen pro license. So, and you can also download a free trial there to check it out before you buy and then revisit smilesoftware.com slash geek and get your 20% off. So highly recommend it. Please check it out. And please our thanks to smile for sponsoring this episode. Lastly, my friend, but not leastly, I want to talk about our new sponsor video blocks. Now you got to visit videoblocks.com slash geek. 2016 that's videoblocks.com slash g-e-e-k 2016 and what you get for that is a subscription to video blocks often often i meant awesome <laughs> i don't know why i said often they're awesome downloads library of more than 115,000 video clips after effects templates and motion backgrounds in addition because you visited videoblocks.com slash geek 2016, you also get access to their audio blocks library, which is 130,000 music tracks, sound effects, loops, and more. If you are doing any kind of creation, you know how valuable it is to have things that you can put in that you don't have to create out of whole cloth. And that's what video blocks does for you. Visiting videoblocks.com slash geek 2016, you get both of those video blocks and audio blocks, unlimited subscriptions for one year for 149 bucks. Everything that you get is 100% royalty free, even after the subscription has come to an end. So you don't need to keep paying the subscription just to have what you've already or to use what you already have. Uh, it's royalty free for both personal and commercial projects without any additional licensing fees. And you can see all kinds their, their user interface there is outstanding you can really really see what you're going to get and pull it down so again you get a subscription to video blocks and audio blocks for just 149 bucks total that's a hundred bucks off the discount of their usual price uh th this is a this is a deal if you're doing any kind of production 
just that that first thing you get saves you the hours that it would have taken you to create it. There's your 149 bucks. Now the rest is gravy. So visit videoblocks.com slash geek 2016. That's geek G E E K two zero one six. And you get this offer from us from video blocks. Our sincere thanks to video blocks for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, let's, um, let's let Allison take us into the next, uh, the next little realm here. Shall we? Hi, John and Dave. At one time or another, all four of my family's iPhones, three iPhone 6s and an iPhone 6 Plus, have gone through a phase where they started losing battery quite quickly. And in fact, usually around 20%, they would drop to zero. So we took all four phones, all separate times, different ones of us bringing them in. We took the phones into Genius Bar appointments, and we were told that there was nothing wrong with the battery on these phones. We got two of them replaced, but two of them we were never able to replace. We had done uh, backups and then restore from backup as, you know, started up as new and restore from backup. And that didn't fix the problem. But the two of us who got new phones, it did fix the problem when we restored from those same backups. So it seems to us that something is wrong with these phones, especially since it happened to all four of us without changes in behavior. So my question, though, to you guys, well, I guess if you know why that's happening, that would be great to know. But the Apple Store people keep telling us that we should be doing setup as new and not restore from a backup because we're probably bringing into the phone whatever's causing the problem. However, if we don't restore from a backup, we lose data. We lose our health data in particular, which we've got more than a year worth of data that we want to keep. Is there a way to do a restore of the health data, but not restore all the other stuff? Anyway, hope you guys can help us out. Yeah, Allison. So let's let's John, let's do this in reverse because I want to talk about the battery uh, issues, too. But to answer her question, this is very this is an interesting scenario, right? Because um, Apple lets you export your health data. If you go into the health app, uh, you can choose right. And this is on your iPhone right at the bottom. You can choose export health data and you can save it anywhere you want. And that will uh, let you, uh, export it essentially as a CSV. You can save it to your Dropbox or, you know, I saved it to my Synology cloud station cause it's in the share pane and I could probably even text it to you if I so chose John. Uh, and that's great, but it doesn't seem to offer a way to import it back in, which is odd. Thankfully there are people, uh, that, uh, that are, well, you know, enterprising that have built apps that will do just this. And the one that seems to, uh, I, I tested it on a spare phone. I have, uh, seems very well respected by other folks that have reviewed it is called health data importer. It's three ninety nine. I would have sworn that I paid two ninety nine us for it the other day, but, uh, but now it's three ninety nine that I'm looking at it. Health data importer. It does exactly what you would think. You have to give it access to write to your health database which would come as no great surprise because that's exactly what you want it to do. Then you point it at this exported file, which I believe is a zip file. And then in it comes uh, and it, it will attribute the data to health import, but at least it, it pulls it in and, and puts it where you want it and all of that good stuff. Have you, have you found anything else um, that, that works for this, John? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a couple others, but I, I, you know, I tested this one. It seems to work really well. So it's interesting, but that Apple would not let you pull this stuff in, but, uh, but you know, there you go. 
I mean, I did. There is an article here that I'm trying to digest from Apple titled, If You're Missing Health Data After Restoring from an iCloud, iCloud Backup You Made with iOS 9 or Later. Hmm. Yeah. No, is, Apple, I, don't do, I don't do a lot with, I don't really use the, uh, the health thing, so I haven't uh, come across this. But it is kind of weird that Apple does have an article here talking about this specific uh, case here. Yeah, and, and no path to solve it. So there, there's another... Um, well, they, they offer kind of a, a silly walk. <laughs> in order yeah, but but it's, all, it's all around your iCloud backup, right? I mean, you have Correct. to pull everything in, which is, which is sort of the problem. If you want to do a nuke and pave and only keep your health and activity data, th- that's not mm. going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is another way uh, using your Mac, and I will put a link to this article in the uh, in the show notes too it's an article by by jim gresham about a year old at i download blog but they've updated it uh just about a month ago maybe less to make sure it's working with ios 10 and watch os 3 and and everything that we would be using today so and it talks about using your mac and uh and a and a utility on the mac to pull data in and you might be able to get more data this way. The I'm not sure if the health data importer pulls in all of your activity data or or what. So depending on what you want to pull in, you may want this this method uh, using your Mac as well. But we'll we'll put them both in the show notes. It's it's handy stuff. So it's crazy though that especially odd that Apple gives you this export but not an import. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird, it's weird. All right, uh, let's talk about her battery issue. My, because my son is having a an odd issue. He mentioned to me it. He's he's mentioned it over time, but he said something specific yesterday. He said, "Yeah." He said, "You know, I put my phone in airplane mode before he had a hockey game yesterday. He was at seventy percent when he came out of his game. Whatever, an hour and a half later, fourteen percent on his battery." And he said, "But don't worry. When I plug it in in the car, just plugging it in will get me right back up to seventy percent." I thought, oh, that's not a good sign. We got it. And I asked him, I said, how long has it been since you let it like totally die? Because maybe that just the, 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 the chipset in there has some corrupt data and just needs to be, you know, um, kind of reset. But the other thing I thought of was to use coconut battery, John, because coconut battery, when you plug your iPhone into your Mac, will kind of read the health of your iPhone battery and, and give you some stats on that too. And he, so I would I would certainly recommend that for for Allison for at home diagnostics of what's going on with the battery. Any thoughts on that, my friend? Uh, you know, I ran into that. I had that happen with uh, uh, two iPhones ago. I think where it would it would just die at twenty percent. Yeah, and the what I found worked for me was to do a DFU. Uh, Restore that being device firmware update oh. restore, which rewrites the firmware. It's it's uh, I think a deeper restore than just doing a restore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seemed to work for me. It seemed to get rid of the problem. So I think it was some minor corruption in the firmware or the circuit. Yep. Uh, oh. That manages that. The other thing is that there is now. I do have now. You remember this? Uh, you know, remember when you. You know, you thought I was spewing crazy talk when I thought that this uh, battery monitor um, yes. program destroyed my. Uh, you were my spewing phone. crazy talk, but yeah, but um, 
But actually, I do have, they, they have upgraded this. And I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, it's just named battery. I'll, I'll get okay. a link to it here. But it is sure. a pretty thorough program. Uh, the, he did have to update it for uh, iOS 10. Sure. Uh, or he finally did. <laughs> it didn't work when I upgraded iOS 10, but now it does. But it shows, similar to coconut battery, but it shows this here. So right now it's showing on my uh, shiny new phone here, battery health. Uh, perfect 1960 out of 1960 milliamp hours, which is full capacity. Yeah. This phone. Yep. It shows the current capacity, but it also shows the voltage, uh, the temperature. And then when you're charging, it shows you information about, uh, or statistics about the, uh, the device that's charging you, um, including the amperage and the power, which is kind of useful. Uh, huh. yeah, I've, I've looked, uh, you know, uh, uh some things will charge at 2.1 amps. Um, and some will charge at one, typically battery packs, uh, uh, from what I found, most battery packs operate at a uh, one amp. Right, uh, right, right. But there are, there are some that, that'll operate at, you know, 2.1 amps, which of course will charge you faster. Of course. Though it generates heat. And then some people say, well, generating the heat may shorten the life of the battery, but eh, you know, give and take. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, well, this I mean, utility if, if I think is good for diagnosing this because it should show you if there's any, anomalies with your uh with your power system including you know showing the voltage the current voltage of the battery right because that's as far as i know that that's how the uh the phone determines how much battery is left is the voltage is as the voltage goes down that makes sense um, sure you know it, it reduces the little percentage that makes sense yeah and and to kind of readdress something you just glossed over there it, it, with a battery that will do 2.1 or any kind of charger, it doesn't have to be a battery. I've got most of my batteries. I would actually say will do 2.1 amps. I, I don't. I have very few left that that only do one. But that's the max that they'll do if they're built properly. Um, the phone and the battery will negotiate, and the phone will only draw current up to the speed that it can uh, that it can charge. And I I think. Oh, what was the calculation? But they, we we shared it in a previous episode, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. But um, but you know, Apple's phones are built not to pull power at a rate faster than they can safely charge the, uh, and it's based on the size of the the maximum capacity of the battery, is what it is. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do some sort of dance when you yeah. plug in the yeah. lightning, saying, uh, "Yeah, I'll I'll take two point one." That's that, right. That's cool. That's right. All right, let's move on to Doug here. If I can find Doug, Doug in here somewhere. Where are we? There we are. Uh, Doug says, um, I'm currently using a 15-inch MacBook Pro uh, built sometime in 2011. It's model 8,2. It's been a great machine. I custom ordered it to include the matte screen and Core i7. So it was a big investment at the time. For the last several months, it's been hit or miss when you boot up as to whether or not it will boot successfully or not. I have tried unhooking all my peripherals. That doesn't usually make a difference. I have an SSD installed. Thinking it might be that, I tried booting into my external backup drive. That doesn't seem to make a difference. It does seem as though it might be temperature related uh, because at times the area right under where the power cord hooks in top left gets hot when it is just looping endlessly but not booting successfully. The gray screen with the sign in the box usually shows up, but after putting in my password and hitting enter, it will start to boot. And then the little progress bar always gets to about the same place and doesn't go any further. Sometimes I click on the guest user box instead of entering the password. And once in a while it works, but not usually 
I have the Firevault whole disk encryption enabled. After several tries, something uh, on the screen comes up with some stripes vertically of a different color other than the gray startup screen. You can still see the printing on the screen. It just has three or four vertical stripes about an inch or so wide spread out on the screen. I have also installed OWC RAM a few years back. I am telling you that I ask your ask. I am asking your opinion on the following scenario. I had just decided back when all this started to just wait until the new MacBook Pros came out and get a new one. Well, the new ones are nice, but the price seems extremely high once you factor in getting a couple hundred dollars worth of dongles. And if I get a new one, I figure the custom specs will get me roughly to uh, 3200 bucks. I haven't pursued the Genius Bar route yet because I was planning to just get a new one. Would it make sense to go to the Apple store and hope that a flat rate type of repair might help me? What advice do you have? So... There's a lot of questions I have here. It, the first thing as I'm as I'm reading this to you all here is have you tried a clean install? Um, it seems like and I know that we're seeing some hardware symptoms, so this may or may not be the answer, but it's certainly the first thing you should try. And if you're going to bother to bring it into the genius bar, they are going to want to try this. So you might as well try it at home and then come in with the results of that. So. You have a backup. That's great. Reinstall from scratch, format the drive, the internal drive and reinstall OS 10. See what happens. That that would be step one. Uh, this may solve the issue, especially if it's getting to the same part in the startup process. Um, it's either that or there's some driver loading right at that point that is causing failed hardware to rear its ugly failure. Um, you can boot with command V hold down, held down, uh, until you start to see text scroll. And now you get to the verbose boot up and that might give you an indicator as to what it is that's happening at that exact moment, but it could easily just be a, a corrupt driver that needs to be reinstalled. Failing that I would, if you have the original Ram, I'd try that too, because, uh, a Apple is going to ask you to try that. And B, if it does happen to be the RAM, that's an easy solution because I think all of OWC's RAM is lifetime warrantied. So, no, you know, that's a pretty easy one. Any thoughts, Sean? <sighs> MacBook Pro 15 inch 2011. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, the one thought is that he says he sees funny stuff on the screen when it's starting up. I'm wondering if it's a, a flaky GPU. Could be. They have. Yeah. They have a uh, GPU being the graphics chip, uh, which this machine has. Well, all machines have some sort of GPU right. integrated. But I, but yeah, the 15-inch MacBook Pros typically have uh, uh, two graphic chipsets. I think this one, I'm not sure if this specific Oh, that's right. Does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got discrete and, and internal, and it switches between them. And that might be it, right? When it's switching to that, uh, to that other GPU, boom, maybe, maybe that's the issue. You can yeah, boot, in, did. boot in safe mode mm -hmm. will bypass that or bypass some of that. I think that's, that's another thing holding down the shift key. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, Hmm. Does this machine, you know, I think this machine has a CMOS battery. I'm wondering if that huh? is dead. Could be. Uh, Cause I had a 2008 machine. That did have a CMOS battery. I, I forget when they've when they they stopped doing that. I'm not sure if the 2011 has one or not. But um, 
that battery being dead may may cause erratic behavior as well. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, man. That's something else to look into. Uh, but the, seeing the stripes on the screen, that that that, that to me is uh, again suggests a, a possible GPU. Yeah, the interesting issue. thing is. He says it only the stripes happen after it's been going through a boot loop for a while. And the other thing he notes is that part of the keyboard or part of the case starts heating up. So I'm wondering if, you know, this boot loop is causing something to overheat a fan, not to kick in when it's supposed to. And then that could cause the GPU to overheat. And now here we have this perhaps side issue. That's only, you know, tangentially related to the the core problem. I, I mean, Anything's possible. I, I think I think you got to start with the um, the fresh install. See what that brings you. Yeah, I, I think because otherwise, I, well, yeah, go into recovery and just yeah reinstall the OS. And see well, don't no, don't just reinstall. You got to go into recovery and then, like I did this mm. week, you got to go into disk utility and format the drive mm. so that you wipe the drive. Because otherwise, you're just gonna if you go into recovery and reinstall. It's just going to put that back on top of what you have. And actually, to be fair, that's not a bad idea. Uh, but if that doesn't solve it, then you need to go back in right. and wipe the drive. Yeah. 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 Because I have had issues that were solved by yeah. reinstalling the OS. The over the top uh, reinstall. Yeah, for sure. And and this might be one of them, right? If it's a, if it's a, um, you know, a, a corrupt driver or something, the over the top might just fix that. That's a good point, man. Yep. Yes. All right. Um, a quick question from listener Jim. Jim says, Hi, David. Uh, Jim from Alaska. I'm guessing you use an iPad at your gigs when you're playing out as a drummer or whatever it is you're doing. If so, I wonder which stand or clamp you use and which software you prefer for set list lyrics, etc. Yeah, I do use an iPad at gigs and I have a stand, a clamp actually that is awesome it is the stage ninja scorpion series clamp it, this thing is amazing and it, you know obviously it works for me on stage it's built for me to use on stage but if you need to clamp an ipad anywhere to be perfectly honest this is likely to be the magic answer for you it it's very lightweight it holds the ipad really well it's I, the one i use is called their universal tablet clamp and the nice part about it is that the iPad is held in there by a, a pressure clamp. So it, you, you can leave your case on it uh, as long as your case isn't too massive. So that's, that's benefit. Number one benefit. Number two is the way these stage ninja clamps work. It, it, John, it's amazing. You position it however you want. It's got this kind of gooseneck thing, but it's like this, 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 you know, futuristic gooseneck concept. You put it where you want. And it's easy to move around. I can move it with one hand, but when I let go of it, it stays exactly where I put it. I, I don't know quite how they made it like hold its position and yet be movable. It's kind of like the, remember the, um, the, 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 the lampshade iMac thing had that to, to it. Although mm -hmm. this one, you need a little bit more pressure to move it, but it's that same concept where you just can grab it with one hand, position it where you want. It stays there. It doesn't. And I clamp it onto my drums. Right. So I am like, you know, hitting my drums and this thing doesn't move. It's like the, 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 you know, the vibrations and stuff from hitting my drums don't like bounce this thing around. So that's what I use is the, uh, the stage ninja clamp. It's awesome. 
Um, and it looks good too. It's black, you know, kind of, in fact, the last two shows I did, um, people couldn't even tell that I had an iPad on stage with me. Uh, another trick to using an iPad on stage, especially if you are reading charts or doing anything where the background of what you're looking at is white and the foreground is black or the text is black. Reverse that. You can go into, um, I think I can do it on the iPhone too. settings, accessibility or oh, it's settings, general accessibility, isn't it? Um, and then you can uh, set the, uh, what is it? The home button now. Crap. I'll have to put this. I'll put this in our, our Facebook group. Oh, go down to the bottom accessibility shortcut uh, in settings, general accessibility at the bottom is accessibility shortcut. And you can triple kick, click the home button for, and with iOS 10 on the iPhone, you get the magnifier is one of them, but you can also choose other things. And one of the things you can choose is invert colors. So I do that. And then the background becomes black. The text becomes white. A, that's way easier to see on a stage. And B, I don't have this big white light shining and lighting up my face um, during the performance. So yes, I use an iPad on stage. Um, as far as apps, there's a couple that I use on song is one that I'll use for like rock gigs. If it's, if it's a gig where I need to do songs that I don't know, I try to have everything memorized for rock gigs to be perfectly honest. Um, but, uh, but if I, if I need to on song is great and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then um, for my theater gigs, I use this app, John called four score. It's um, it's four. It's at F O R S C O R E dot co. We'll put a link in of course. And, uh, and, what I, what I can do with this, it it's built totally for reading charts on stage, like scores. You can hook it up to a, a pedal or a, a thing to advance the page. But as a drummer, uh, my feet are very busy. It's actually easier for me to just tap the iPad with my, my finger and, and advance it that way. Um, and for this most recent show, we had one song that we added in sort of at the last minute. And we really needed the tempo to be at the right spot. And it was a quick change from the previous song to that one. So I couldn't stop. And just like the way I feel tempos is I feel them like the best way is feel them in your body. Um, trying to hear it in your head, adrenaline and, and everything else will, will mess with you at times. And I didn't have time to like settle into this one and go. So I thought, well, I'll use a click. And Fourscore has the ability to do a visual click. It, it flashes the border of the screen at whatever tempo you tell it to for however long you tell it to. So I was using um, Fourscore to, to just give me a starting tempo for the tune. And if it, if it floated from there, once we all got into it, that was great. But at least I was starting it at the spot where it was like, yep, okay. And I could trust it. And I didn't have to second guess what I was you know, thinking in my head or any of that stuff. So actually, I did that with two songs in the last, in the last show. So, but I do use my iPad at rock gigs because we have a DL 1608 Mackie mixer, which is one of the best inventions of our modern day, having a digital mixer that's priced for the average, you know, weekend warrior to use is awesome. I can use my iPad to control the mix. Like, especially when we're tuning the PA or whatever, I can stand in front of a microphone. I don't have to go back and forth to the mixer. I can go out in the front of house and listen. I can give the iPad to someone I trust. They can mix the show. And the best part is when we finish the show, I hit save. If we come back to the same room, I hit restore, pick that room and boom, everything's right where I want it to be, which is pretty awesome. So, so that's what I got, John. 
Do you ever use your iPad on stage? No. No, huh? No, I don't. I don't uh, blame you. Mm. Yeah. It's still dead. Oh, that's right. That sucks, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll probably get a flat rate. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When I had a, yeah, when I stopped by the Genius Bar and they diagnosed my phone that got blown up by that stupid uh, charger. Yeah. I also took a look at the iPad and said, well, same thing. It's out of warranty. So, um, yeah, and I think the flat rate for, for that iPad, I think it's it's two forty nine or two ninety nine. It was two something, I think he said. Right, right. So, well, but honestly, it's not a integral part of my day to day workflow. Is that right? It's nice for consuming content. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read a ton on my iPad. I do actually do a lot of email and stuff on the couch with it, too. Yeah. The yeah. phone, on the other hand, when I was without my phone for a couple of days, I found out just how many <laughs> yeah. things I rely on that are that are on the phone. Right. The Apple Pay, but you know, a lot of other things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, our phones are, I mean, we're we're addicted to those. So, yes, yeah, sir. All right. Let's... Um, Oh, where am I here? I got to figure out where we are. Um, let's see, John. Why not? Yeah, let, let, Phil has an interesting little dilemma here because Phil's trying to do something interesting. He says, I have a friend who's not tech savvy, but has a big issue. He has an iPhone 5 and he wants an iPhone 7. He's also got a white MacBook that is maybe running Snow Leopard and has a lot of content not purchased in iTunes. Obviously, the MacBook can't run the latest iTunes needed to sync an iPhone 7, and iCloud won't back up stuff that wasn't purchased through iTunes. So I have concocted a plan, but before I do it, I was hoping to get your opinion. If I pop out his old hard drive and make a clone, then boot my Mac using his hard drive, upgrade the OS on his hard drive, and then sync his old phone to my Mac, but his hard drive, then set up his new phone using my Mac, but his hard drive and iTunes backup, Will that transfer everything over? Wow. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I'm not getting the first part as to why you couldn't do this. Uh, I think I'm missing something. I, I'm, I'm not clear as to why an iCloud backup would not accomplish this. Because he wants to transfer his co- unpurchased content, right? That's the problem is like 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 any songs that he had personally that he ripped personally and then put on his iphone icloud backups don't have any of that data oh all right um same with movies anything you you put on your phone frankly regardless of whether or not you have the rights to it doesn't matter the only thing you can download from apple unless you have apple music and then that's different or iTunes match. And then that's different. But uh, without iTunes match or Apple music, having synced your iCloud music library, then uh, yeah, then you, you can't download any of that stuff and movies are the same way. But here's the thing. Your iTunes backup won't do that either. Um, it you there. iTunes will not pull content off of an iPhone like that. Uh, if you already, if your friend already has this content on his computer, then yes, using his hard drive like you describe could be the way to get that content back on uh, to his new iPhone 7. But if he doesn't have the content on his computer, then no, uh, pulling from the iPhone, you'll need something like iMazing to pull the content off of his iPhone and then 
sync it back onto the new one. Uh, and iTunes could sync it back onto the new one, of course, because that's what iTunes does. But iTunes does not pull content off and neither do iCloud backups. So depending on what, depending on how complete his iTunes backup is, frankly, the easiest answer might be to just use something like iMazing on your Mac. Don't worry about his Mac. Uh, just pull the data off of his iPhone with iMazing and then put it back on again, either using iMazing or iTunes on your Mac and then, and then just walk away and you're done. That's my thought on it. What are your thoughts, John? Uh, I thought Apple offered a way to do this. Mm-mm. Through an Apple store. I'm looking here one-on-one. Well, maybe they don't. I Apple, Apple, Apple has no official tool to do this is I think part of the problem and understandably so, right? You know, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I don't really use my iOS devices for uh, <clears throat> for watching movies. Or, really? Uh, how about how about really. like in your car, like your music or whatever? No. I listen to the thing called the radio. They still broadcast on that, man. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Apparently, AM and FM. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, both kinds. <laughs> uh all right. Frank, I'm, I'm going to throw this question out there, but we're not going to answer it today um, because actually I want to hear your versions of this too, folks. And in addition, obviously to, to yours and mine, John, um, Frank asked, I'll read his question, but I'm not going to answer it. He said, uh, I'm a longtime windows user on my computer, but since the rest of my tech is all Apple, I just purchased the new 15 inch MacBook pro. I was wondering if you can include in the show, what are your top 10 essential applications that everyone needs on their Mac? So I don't know that there is one list of 10 that everyone needs, but uh, I know we all have at least our top five, uh, if not top 10. I would love to hear yours. I started building mine, but I'm not going to share what's on it yet. You could probably guess, you know, for those of you who've known me uh, and listened for a long time, John, same kind of thing. I'm sure we could start to guess, but let's, let's save that for next week's show. Uh, so we'll answer Frank next week, but I wanted to throw that, that question out there because I think that's, it's going to be a fun one. So iTunes, Sean, <laughs> no poking the bear. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, while we're here, Josh had a question about different photo clouds, kind of revisiting a topic in a different, from a different angle. He says, I'm on vacation taking pictures with my iPhone. I've got iCloud photo library going with optimized phone storage enabled. I also have active other services, Amazon photos, Google Photos and OneDrive, Microsoft's solution. Are these other services saving the full file or some optimized compressed version from iCloud Photo Library? So this is interesting. Um, Because I've been playing around with this too now that I've turned on iCloud Photo Library. Uh, I've been using Amazon Photos um, and Google Photos. And if you have the full version on your phone, and we'll get to that if in a minute, but assuming you have the full version on your phone, Neither one of those services will by default store the full version untouched on their cloud. They both go through a mild compression. It's more appropriate to probably think about it as an analysis uh, of your image. But in the process, it is re-encoding it or recompressing it. And the reason they do that is, number one, so that they can have a consistent format on their cloud. 
And number two in the analysis process so that they can go through and find all of the smart things that they find. So that when you go and look for, you know, pictures of cars, it just magically surfaces all the pictures you have of cars, regardless of whether or not you've chosen to tag anything that way or name anything that way. So both Google and Amazon do that. Uh, I believe I know Google allows this. I think Amazon does. But certainly with Google, if you choose and, and when you do that, you get unlimited storage with Google. If you choose to pay for your Google storage, then they will let you upload untouched, full size versions of your pictures. But you don't get all the benefits of the analysis and scanning if you do that. So um, I can't I'm not nearly as insane about visual content as I am about audio content. I can hear a lot of differences in audio that other people just don't care about. When I'm looking at the difference between a picture that I've taken on my phone and the, the version that lives on Google or Amazon, I cannot see a difference. That does not mean that there isn't a difference. In fact, it likely means there is, but I just don't care enough to notice it. Um, and that's just me. So your mileage may vary, but these things are all free. So you should check it out. Now, the second part of the question, though, John, is what happens when it's an iCloud photo library? As I've found I believe what's happening because I'm getting full versions of all of my pics on Amazon as, as my phone's going through and, and uploading this. And I know that my phone didn't take these pictures because my phone is new. It seems to be pulling down the full size version uh, for me and uploading it to Amazon. And then through the process, it's kind of, you know, purging out the old stuff from iCloud photo library. So I, I think it's doing, I think it's sending full size versions up to Amazon, or at least pr providing them to Amazon for them to analyze and recompress and, and upload. So that's, that's, uh, that's been my experience, but if anybody knows any, any different, that's, uh, I would love to hear about it. Thoughts, John. Yeah. Nah, I was just fiddling with Flickr, which is... Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, most... Yeah, Flickr is my primary... Well, yeah, it's a cloud photo service. Hmm. Um, totally. And I'm looking yeah. at... Depending on what you use, yeah, I mean, it's it's worth fiddling, I think, with uh, various options here. So sometimes I'll take something with Instagram and publish it both on Instagram and then also push it to Twitter and to Flickr. Sure. And looking here, that seems to... Uh, well, Instagram commits many crimes with your photo when it, it chops oh, yeah. it and compresses yeah. it and all of that. Yeah. Well, you know, for the longest time, I don't know what was wrong, but even though I had my Flickr account set up on my iPhone and I would tell Instagram to push it to Flickr, it just wouldn't do it. Huh. W wouldn't, you know, I'd, I'd yeah, move sure. the slider and I'd say, yeah, can you push it to Flickr as well? And no error message. It just didn't do it. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, it's working again. So I don't know. They must have had some sort of bug here. But uh, right. very confusing because, yeah. you know, I mean, can you, you know, give me an error or something? Yeah, right. Yeah, help, help a brother out a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it does seem that if you publish something with, uh, you know, with Instagram, yes, it commits many crimes. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is I, fine. Want, you just need to know I, that. Yeah. Yeah. If I want the full resolution, then I, I, I'm pretty sure... Or I'm looking here and I see some photos I took in the past, and it seems that it will upload the full resolution if you use the Flickr uploader. Right. So, though even then, a lot of programs, and I remember even you know with Aperture and even Photos, uh, a lot of times they'll you know there will be an option saying, "Hey, by the way, you want to 
you know, put the uh, full resolution up there or you want to yeah. save a little space. I mean, in, in the case of Flickr, I mean, they give you a terabyte. So uh, unless you're, uh, you know, taking pictures 24 <laughs> seven, you're probably not going to deplete that though. You may. Who knows? Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. It's interesting stuff, man. That's, uh, that's how it goes. And this is how the show goes. It's good. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is where you can send in your thoughts. That's where you're going to send in your top apps. It doesn't have to be 5 or 10 or any specific number. Just send us in. And uh, I would I would say this. Send them in in order of priority because we're not going to be able to read everyone's lists. I, I just, I mean, maybe we can, but I don't think we'll be able. I need to prepare for the world where we can't read your entire list on the air. So please make sure to prioritize. Put the most important one first, the least important one last, even though they're all important. Send that in to feedback at MacGeekCap.com. No, 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 no. no. Feedback at MacGeekCap.com is where you want to send that. Or you can call us with your list, but email's probably better for a list, to be perfectly honest. But if you're driving and you can't email us, certainly go ahead and call. The number is 224-888-GEEK. And John Geek is... Four, three, three, five. I would love to get some more iTunes reviews, John. Uh, I just saw one come in from uh, Mac1234. He says, I love the Mac Geek Gab podcast. I listen every week. I discovered it in June. And after listening to about a dozen of their podcasts in a week, I became a premium subscriber. If any Mac or iPhone user listened to any of their shows, you would do the same. The podcast is not only extremely informative, but entertaining. Dave and John like all think like all Mac users, what app or feature frustrates them, what app or feature they like and use. But the thing is, they both know a lot more than the vast majority of folks out there. And their goal is for everyone to learn three or four new things each week. Mac1234 goes on and on. Thank you for that review. We would love to see more reviews in iTunes. It helps the folks at iTunes see that you're engaging with us. That gets the show Put on their top 10 list. That brings in more listeners. That brings in more content. That brings in everything that's good for all of us that are already a part of the Mac Geek Gab family. So please go to iTunes and uh, I will even make it so that I think we already did this, but I'll, I'll fix it if, if, if we haven't or I'll make it happen if we haven't. Go to MacGeekGab.com slash iTunes. That will bring you to as close as we can get you to the point where you can write a review. So MacGeekGab.com slash iTunes. Um, for those of you in the live stream, if you try it and it doesn't work, let me know and I'll make it work. And then we'll go from there. Thank you for listening, folks. Very, very good stuff. Really great questions this week. We tried to keep things a little geekier and not kind of dig too much into the too many basic things this week. So uh, I'm curious what you folks think of all that, too. I want to thank Cashfly, that C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. I want to thank our sponsors and those in the podcast marketplace that continue to sponsor us. Of course, that's Casper at Casper.com slash M-G-G, where coupon code M-G-G saves you 50 bucks. PDF Pen Pro 8 from Smile at Smilesoftware.com slash geek. Of course, video blocks and audio blocks now at videoblocks.com slash geek2016. The great folks at Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. Gazelle at gazelle.com. Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com. And the great folks at Barebones Software at barebones.com. Thank you so much for all of your support. And that includes all of you premium listeners, especially 
you premium listeners. In this episode, that was, uh, let's see, Frank asking his question about the top 10 apps. Josh, Jim, Doug, Todd, John, Bruce, and you. And I have a special wish for all of you this week. Don't get caught. Made up.